a major mindset shift, a major culture mm. shift, a major shift in the ways the organization was working, leading, conducting business in not just at the top, but what we realized that the, the centers of change are required in the middle of these organizations that see and know the day to day, every day, but are mm. afraid to share the things that are going wrong because they have to be done a certain way because that's just the way things have always been done. Uh, and so this organization was smart enough to say, look, if we're going to grow and scale our innovation into the future, we have to fundamentally shift the ways that we're working, the ways that we're leading. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Glenn Yo Peace. Glenn, a Cuban American entrepreneur and best selling author who helps organizations leverage inclusive leadership by utilizing his strategies to create meaningful change. Welcome to our show, Glenn. Shahid, how are you doing? Great to be here. Doing wonderful, my friend. I was doing great. I'm glad to get an opportunity to meet with you. It looks like you're doing some wonderful things in your world and for organizations as well, because inclusivity is super important because businesses are catering to all sorts of cultures, but within the organization is also important within an organization to create some inclusivity where there's more understanding towards different cultures and backgrounds. Is that correct? Look, I think in simple terms, it's about how does everybody feel how they can best contribute? And one of the mm. things that, that I've learned is that, you know, corporations, large institutions never really accounted for what mattered to individuals, no matter where they came from. Uh, and I call this the age of standardization where the business or the institution defines the individual. And what we're now seeing is that things are moving in the other direction. It's now about how the individual defines the process towards a shared mission. So mm -hmm. this concept of leadership in the age of personalization came about because back in 2015, I defined this term called, and I saw it, reach its tipping point, the cultural demographic shift. And I think this is what you're alluding to, is that when mm. large cultural segments of the population reach numbers sufficient enough to have a significant effect on what we do and how we act. And, and what mm -hmm. happened in that moment in time is that everybody started to see that the world was literally different. What, what does that mean? That regardless of what was going on in the marketplace, the workplace society started to look literally different. People look mm. different, act different. We started realizing that everything was different, but the marketplace was still the marketplace. And what do I mean by that is we were always looking for the demand of what consumers wanted and needed. But we always felt as brands that we knew what was in their best interest. And this is when we saw 
slowly but surely, this wave of personalization start hitting the marketplace because everybody now expected different things from brands, that brands could no longer define consumers anymore. Now the consumers wanted to define them or at least help shape those brands into the future. But with all those millions upon millions of dollars, Shahed, that was invested in consumers with personalization, my question was always, wait a minute, why aren't you making those same investments for your employees in the workplace? Mm. Mm. What happened? There became this massive surge around diversity and inclusion. Now it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's many different acronyms now that people use. And what was its intent? Its intent was to give people from culturally diverse backgrounds a voice, a platform to earn respect. But what happened? It's much like what happened in the marketplace. When brands begin began to want to define what consumers need and want, rather than the other way around, meaning listen to what consumers need and want and then give them what they need and want. This started happening in the workplace. What did the workplace do? They created environments for many different culturally diverse populations um, to be able to come together and create a sense of belonging. And while that intent was good, what didn't happen? In its effort to bring people closer together, it actually pulled people further apart because what, what took place is the dynamic of tribalism. And I know that this can be a politically charged word, but let's put it in corporate terms. When you continue, continue to put people in boxes, when you continue to further create silos, what we create are more and more clusters of people. And this threatens standardization because environments of that, that are highly standardized, highly controlled, they want to control everything, not just their business strategy, financial predictiveness, what can get reported to Wall Street. They want to control people. And when I saw this trend appear, I realized, wait a minute, if the objective here is to overly silo, categorize people, even in the way we look at people's jobs, right? We put them in particular functions and we leave them in those functions. We put people in predetermined boxes and they could only do what's inside that box they're given. What happens, Shahed, is that we unknowingly begin to suppress people. We unknowingly begin to limit people. We unknowingly begin to create environments of us versus them versus we and me. And so the reason for leadership in the age of personalization is to give people an understanding that, look, the balance of power is shifting away from traditional institutions into the hands of individuals. Why? It's not because of diversity, equity, inclusion. It's because people don't trust as much as they did large institutions such as healthcare. People have trouble trusting the healthcare industry or large corporations or government or other large institutions. Why? Because those standards that were originally created, they never accounted for what mattered to the individual, no matter who that individual was. And the truth is, I actually don't believe, and maybe people would call me foolish, but I'm always giving people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> 
But I don't think those institutions intended for people not to matter. But because if you mm-hmm. think about it, the origin roots of businesses were to do what mattered to the individual. But when money got involved, when profit and loss became the underpinnings around everything that we did, slowly but surely, we began to wash away what mattered to the individual. And all that we're feeling now is that this wave is coming back and the individuals want two things. They want their dignity and they want to be respected. But what standardization, Shahed does a really good job of, is a, they're really good at creating the centers of controls around people that when not managed well can create what we now see in society, which is a complete polarization of human beings. But then how do you cater to the different groups and their requirements? Because every type of group or every type of community has their own needs, specific needs. Wouldn't you still need a silo for that? No, what you need are leaders that take the time to see okay. and know people as individuals. And see, it, it, that's what's happened is that leaders don't take the time or enough time. Let's start from scratch. Okay. First of all, mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. you see me? Do you know me? You know that we live in a world today, Shahed, where people don't know each other anymore. They really don't. What mm-hmm. they know is how one is perceived, what they yes. see out Mm -hmm. on Google or any search Mm -hmm. engine. No, it's the Mm -hmm. perception of who people are. But people don't know other people's personal lives, their problems, uh, the things that they're losing sleep over. See, but those, see, though that goes against the constructs of standardization. Standardization knows is, look, you're supposed to be something in order to be valued in society, in the world, or in the workplace. You're supposed to have a title. You're supposed to drive a nice car. You're supposed to have things that give people the illusion that you matter. When that's not true, it's actually the opposite. It's about how do you get to know who somebody is, their capacities, beyond their education or their experiences? Because If you look at the experiences of people, oftentimes they're defined by their job or they're defined by what companies that they've worked for. Mm -hmm. They haven't been defined by the adversities that they've been through. They haven't been defined by the successes that they've enjoyed Uh, because those adversities or successes, if they haven't been defined as something worthy in standardization, then they must not matter. When that's not true. Think about your story. You have overcome a lot of adversity. You started this podcast as a way of helping yourself reclaim your own sense of dignity and self-worth. You have millions of people watching your podcast. What did you prove to yourself and to the world that you didn't have to be what others wanted you to be? You just sought to be what you wanted to be yourself. And that was to create community. That was to create impact. And that was to give people hope that if they trusted themselves and if they valued themselves, they had the worthiness to achieve whatever they wanted to achieve. But apparently in standardization, leaders will say, that just takes too much time for me to figure out. I'm trying to meet the metric. And my response to that is, first of all, are we solving for the right metric? And Do we actually know how to get the best out of our people if we don't know who they are? 
what capacities it can bring, and the superpowers that are often unseen. Mm -hmm. But Glenn, how do you convince a company like that that has been doing it a certain way and then bring this idea where they have to shift their attention from very specifically looking at the numbers to look at it more broadly, to look at the human side of things, to eventually mm. bring those numbers back to where they were, for example. How do you talk to someone like that? How do you talk to those mm. organizations? And then what mm. steps do you take to make your point valid enough that they take the step? First of all, this is all about human behavior. But yeah. I'll get back to that in a moment. So how do mm. I convince them? I learned mm. a long time ago that people try to convince other people of things that they don't even know. And I'm not mm. going to sit here and tell you that I have all the answers, regardless mm. of the fact that I've written four books and a methodology to help people understand the value of this work. So what did I do? When I created this platform, Leadership in the Age of Personalization, Shahid, I, I, was, I was convinced to your point that no one could be even remotely begin to understand this unless they connected it back to the numbers. Because you said it's all about the numbers. I began to work with a Wall Street analyst. And uh, this analyst, his name is Nick Modi. He works for RBC Capital Markets. And RBC Capital Markets has defined what I just shared with you as the individual revolution. When there's a balance of power shift from traditional institutions into the hands of individuals, and they believe the individual revolution will likely be the single biggest disruptive force to existing centers of power. In other words, we see this already. Employees leaving their jobs because of mm -hmm. post-pandemic stressors, feeling mm -hmm. forced to do more with less, poor work conditions, and other indignities. How about patients in healthcare? They're consumers too. What's mm -hmm. happened with them? Now they have options to go see uh, where they can get the best quality for the best cost of care. What have been the consequences? Hospitals all throughout the United States have, they didn't plan for this new reality because why? They were order takers. And so now many of them have been struggling financially just to keep up. What about students, our future workforce? They're now evaluating everything, tuition costs, financial aid mm -hmm. costs, uh, what really matters to their families and the needs of their families. In other words, gone are the days where a traditional four-year institution was the only path to success when now you have online learning and certificate programs that give students alternatives at their fingertips. This individual revolution, leadership in the age of personalization, is in full force. And so this is not a secret anymore. I think the mm -hmm. bigger question is, it's not about convincing people that this is a reality. It's about helping them know how to respond to it. And I think this is mm -hmm. the biggest issue, right? It goes back to what you said. When you've been doing things a certain way for so long, yeah. I mean, how can you even begin to interrupt and pivot from that, especially when you mm -hmm. consider that the people are, are in charge of these large institutions. They're part of my generation. They have been indoctrinated in this standardized way of thinking. Mm -hmm. That's all they know. And so I used to, quite candidly, I, I used to get frustrated by this. But you know what? 
even my mindset needs to shift. And I've become mm. more empathetic. Why? Because that's all they know. And so mm. this is where these new generations, I have to tell you, the I've always believed that that my job is not to convince people of anything. I believe in building community that can share their stories around the very same things that I'm telling you about in their own way. And that's mm. why um, I've taken the time to build a community. Uh, and part of that community is not just physicians, deans, and students or, or presidents, but also students, patients, and employees. In this next generation, and I know we talk about these generational shifts all the time, but look, we can't ignore that digital natives understand personalization inherently. So for them, everything I've talked to you about, that's what they expect. Mm -hmm. And so if they're now the next generation of the workforce, many of which are already in the workforce, Gen Z is going to come out with even more firepower. In other words, <laughs> these things are not even negotiable anymore. So true. So, yeah. There's no choice. There's no this choice. Point, no so, cho <laughs> I want to be patient because you can imagine when I started talking about these things many years yeah. ago, people thought I was crazy. It's it part about being the super entrepreneur. Like when everybody yeah. goes this way, yeah, you have course. to have the courage to go the other way. And Glenn, this is needed. Well, that's why you this exist and why your podcast yeah. is so important. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Can you share a success story of a, of a, of a company or leader that just nailed this concept? And, and if you can share some key things that you got from it? Sure. Sure. I can't mention names, but I can no, mention. No, of course not. I can't mention names, but what I can tell yeah. you is that um, I'll mention some industries. How about that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, good. Um, yeah. In healthcare, uh, let's talk about this one. It's an important one. It's a super important one. And it's because yeah. of how you started the show today. Could you imagine that there's all these culturally diverse populations that quite candidly, Hispanic, black, Asian populations uh, that don't necessarily feel comfortable with the healthcare industry, primarily Hispanic and black populations. And these are the populations that the healthcare industry, not that they ignored them, but unfortunately they have viewed them as cost centers uh, because many of us are, have socioeconomic challenges. And oftentimes we're the ones that go to the emergency room for care. And so they have, have ignored, not by design, I guess you could say a little bit by design, but they haven't taken the time to see how these populations are not just impacting their communities, but all communities, regardless of culturally diverse backgrounds. What do I mean by that? It affects everyone. It affects everyone. Not, it doesn't just affects, affect taxpayers, payers, but it affects everyone's health and the research mm. that's been done on chronic disease states like cancer, heart disease, and other uh, chronic disease states that if, that these culturally diverse populations are most susceptible to. But imagine how many people that don't belong to those culturally diverse populations, Shahid. They haven't mm -hmm. had the benefit of the research that's been done to those populations because those populations haven't felt comfortable sharing themselves in, cl in clinical trials in order for the research to be done. But now that's slowly changing and they're finding new discoveries in health, in, in cancer, different forms of cancer. And 
heart disease that are actually making pharma products stronger and more well-versed to help all populations. So it's incredible that when we ignore certain demographic groups, the impact it has on broader populations. But what is the point? In doing that project, we realized that healthcare, and I say this respectfully, I just wrote a white paper that's going to be coming out here in the next three months, that we've never taken the time to see, we talk about seeing our employees as individuals, mm-hmm. seeing them as consumers. Why haven't we seen patients as consumers? Why haven't we taken the time to understand what they uniquely need as patients? Because as I'm going to take a stab at this, but in our populations, in our cultures, we know the importance of gathering the community together, gathering our families together. There's a Mm -hmm. level of intimacy that is inherent in our cultural backgrounds uh, that requires us to- Very intimate. That requires us to trust people in a way because let's call it what it is. We were raised to be cautiously skeptical because- Mm. We've known that when people haven't seen and know us as individuals, perhaps they make assumptions about who we are or what we want. Mm -hmm. And so imagine the millions of patients that are being treated today in the healthcare industry that may not feel seen and known. That has an effect on an industry that represents nearly 20% of the GDP uh, in the United States. Sorry, I went long on that, but the point is that this required a major mindset shift, a major culture Mm. shift, a major shift in the ways the organization was working, leading, conducting business in not just at the top, but what we realize that the the centers of change are required in the middle of these organizations that see and know the day to day, every day, uh, but are Mm. afraid to share the things that are going wrong because they have to be done a certain way because that's just the way things have always been done. Uh, and so this organization was smart enough to say, look, if we're going to grow and scale our innovation into the future, we have to fundamentally shift the ways that we're working, the ways that we're leading. And part of that discovery was this, and I know that many people in healthcare may not want to hear this, but it's <laughs> actually recognizing that people that have been part of that industry for so long were the ones that got in the way. Why? Because healthcare is a highly regulated industry. Change is something that's not always not so easy, Uh, but there were certain people there that were holding the organization back because they were thinking more about their own obsolescence rather than what was in the best interest of the organization. And this goes back to what the individual revolution, right? It disrupts existing centers of power. And so there's certain clusters of people uh, that have been around so long that they just can't hold up. They just can't let go to that power for the betterment of the whole. Is that a good example for you? Oh, yes. Wonderful. So it's one of the most important industries to look at for something like this, but I can see this going into even the school systems. We can start working at creating this type of environment and then working into more of the bigger corporations. But obviously it's going to get to a point, like you said, Gen Z, they're hot and ready and they come, they're going to have a lot of demands. Uh, So that'll be exciting. Can Mm -hmm. I share a story with you? 
just sure. to give you a sense of this, this is a Gen Zer in higher education because we work yeah. with higher education deans. Yeah. Now, one thing that we we all know is that in higher education there are professors that have these this tenure, and primarily they're researchers and they've been at it for a while. There have been incidences now where many people would recognize them, especially those people in standardization as insubordination. So what's happening? Mm. These Gen Z students will come to class and they'll go up to the professor after the class and say, look, I read the, the synopsis for the day. So I went to Stitch, I went to YouTube, I went to all these social media platforms and I started learning about what people were talking about. Oh, I meant syllabus, excuse me. And I started researching on my own before this class to see how it would match up with the research that you are going to show. And quite candidly, I think that your research is outdated. Could you oh, imagine? Wow. You are a professor, yeah. a researcher for 25 plus years. And now the 18 year old individual walks up and says that you don't matter. But this is mm -hmm. the irony of this, right? Because it's these younger populations, especially in their youth with all this bullying and things that take place especially online where it, people have thought they haven't mattered for a long time at work. Imagine you don't feel like you matter in society. And so these younger populations have less tolerance to that. So because they have access to information, they can hold people accountable. Yeah. Could you imagine that they've done this due diligence in advance to say, no, I'm not the one that matters. I'm not here for you to convince me of something that I don't believe in. I'm going to do my own independent work on this to see if you matter. And so that's what's happening is yeah. this balance of power shift, right? From yeah. institution to individual. And so these things can get lost in translation, Shahid, when you talk about them on the surface. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity no to problem. go a little bit deeper because doesn't this, this make yeah. logical sense? Yes, 100%. For me, it aligns with my beliefs as well overall and the concept of bringing everyone together and having more attention on the human side of things this falls under heart to heart business i can see you're going to continue to do such great work that's probably why you're such a sought after keynote speaker as well you definitely know how to share your information i appreciate you for coming on our show it was great meeting you and great talking to you shahid Thank you. Anything I can do to support you, you let me know because I'll tell you, you have a tremendous amount of resilience and enough to be reinvention ready. You've reinvented yourself. And when you yeah. think about all these things that I've shared with you, uh, and you'd mentioned earlier, how do you get people to see these things? People need to be able to see a need to reinvent. That's mm. hard. Imagine what I was mm. sharing with you about these healthcare leaders. Yeah. There comes a point in your not life. To, not to ignore, no. but jump on it, right? For the change. Well, no. And you would hope that one would jump on it. But see, this is mm. where resilience, this is about, mm. it's not just being able to adapt and thrive amid change and volatility. It's about upholding the highest levels of integrity because mm. yes. part of it is being able to see a need to reinvent. Another thing is hmm. doing what's right. Doing what's right. <laughs> and that's yeah. the issue that I see is that yeah. it's not that 
people can't see these things. I think that oftentimes they they say they can't see it out of their yeah. own defense mechanism uh, mm. because it's many things in life, many things in life, many exactly. things, even mindset. How we work with mindset with people sometimes it's easier to ignore that they're saying it's out here. I have to learn more things. I have to do more things. I have to get more. I have to get busier. They don't see the concept that it could be something that needs to be shifted internally to start seeing different results on the outside. But to explain, that's why I had that question for you, because sometimes when someone is in a certain mindset to introduce something new, nobody likes to be changed. They want to make that decision to change. So just wanted to hear from you how you explain it to them. Great hearing that answer and, and appreciate your time today. Definitely keep in touch. If there's anything that we can do in the future, let us know and take care. Thank you so much, Shahid. Have a very uh, happy uh, holiday season and all the best to everything that you do. You too, my friend. Thank you.